This is Andrew. Uh, he's a student at Ohio State, um, supposedly excruciatingly intelligent. That's what I hear. So he's also a great lover of the Lord. So he's going to pray for us this morning. Is it on? Okay, yes. there you go. All right. <laughs> Lord, thank you for another morning that we get to live uh, with you. Um, we pray that you would bless this time this morning and uh, you would just open our eyes to what you would have for us and I uh, pray you would bless John and just um, you would speak through him this morning and just thank you for this opportunity to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, hear from you and draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Will you run? How's that? Is it better? Uh, good morning, my good friends. Uh, today uh, we have an exciting topic. Um, the notion is God as glory. Uh, my beautiful artwork up there will, uh, this is ancient PowerPoint. Now, I stopped using PowerPoint. Does anyone know why? Huh? Uh, no, 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 not just because people just wrote down the words, but there's another reason. Anyone? The computer works. <laughs> no. Uh, <clears throat> it still works. Uh, once in a while, I'll use it, but it, it, it induces passivity. It, it's like people start watching TV or something, and they don't want to say anything. They just want to watch, and that's horrible for education. So now I went back to the primitive way, and in that way, I hope we'll have interaction and discussion and not just listening to me wax on. Uh, God as glory. Uh, who can think of one passage, a famous passage in the Bible that speaks about glory? <laughs> you can talk about anything you want. Glory, glory. What comes into your mind? Oh, okay. Uh, from uh, the book of Luke when Jesus was born. Thank you. Yes. And there's the famous piece, and the glory of the Lord shone among us. Uh, I can't see the rest of the thread, but it's, it's, it's a reference from, I assume, Isaiah in that case. Yeah. And then adapted into Luke at Jesus' birth, the glory of the Lord shone round. Yes. Uh, how about Psalm 19:1? The heavens. As soon as I say it, you're going to remember it. The heavens declare the glory of God. Yes. So I what I want to do this morning is talk about something that we don't talk about too much. Now, those of you who come from churches like this one that still have a liturgical tradition, 
when you do liturgies, when you have a set form of worship, you get to a certain point that's called the doxology. What's that? Doxology. What, what, what? what? Yes, it's to, pra to praise God, doxology. Okay, doxa, D-O-X-A, is um, where, it is a tr just a transliteration from the Greek. Doxa is the Greek word for glory. So the doxology is when we, this is the weird thing, you can't really give God glory. Why not? <laughs> because God is who God is. But when, when preachers and churches and, and in services, when we say, okay, give God glory, what they really mean is accept and acknowledge God as God really is, and God really is glorious. So it's an exhortation to enter into that which God really is, glory. Yes, sir? Yeah, um, well, here's, here's the theological reason why not. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of Will Durant? Yes, one of the great historians of all time. This guy was a genius, trained as a Jesuit priest. Uh, he wrote a comprehensive history of the human race. I mean, I have the set, uh, staggeringly well-learned, and yet he stumbled over this because when he gets into the book of Exodus, he finds it odd in which God's always talking about, I will not share my glory with others. And, and he says, this God that the Jews worship has got an ego problem because he always wants people to lift him up and make him great. And uh, this is, what happened is, is that this is an anthropomorphism, uh, God speaking to us in human terms and trying to lead us into the realization that God is glorious and to enter into that is the one, you can't, you can't give God anything. God is what God is. Now, why would God, let's, let's solve this intellectual problem, though. Why would God want you to enter into God's glory? Why would God want you to know about God's glory? Yes, just so that you could have the joy of knowing God as God is. So it's not about giving anything to God. God wants to do what? Give something, Give something to you. And so when we're little children, God trained the Jewish people. Yes, give me glory, which was really meant enter into who I really am. Now that we're in the New Testament era, we need to move on and realize God's not up in heaven, you know, waiting for us to sing to God or... Uh, say wonderful things to God, even though when we do that, it becomes the vehicle for what? When we sing to God, when we talk about how God is great, when we consider God as glory, that becomes the means by which we can enter into that experience. But you're not giving anything to God. Does it make sense to you? God's beyond it's our... Mm -hmm. And I can think that from a distance. But if I send her a card and said, just want you to know I'm thinking about you and what a wonderful person you are, that doesn't change how wonderful she is. No, it doesn't. But it gets me into how wonderful she is. Yes, and, and is she a wonderful person, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there you go. So then you enter into a relationship of realization of the good qualities that each of you share, but you're not really changing one another. Okay, that's very, very important to understand because... 
if an intellectual like Will Durant could stumble over this and think God's up in heaven needing us to give something to God, uh, maybe some of you might have that problem too. And so what we want to do is reverse this and put it on its, on its proper uh, basis. God wants us to enter into God's glory so that we can have that experience of God's glory for us, not for God. Does that make sense to you? Yes, I thought it would. <laughs> now, having said that, we'll start right at the beginning, my little pictograms. The heavens declare the glory of God. So, the first way that God began to manifest God as glory to human beings was not in words. By the way, does anyone want to give a guess at the, the most current scientific view of how long humans have been on this earth? Humans. Like us. Not Australopithecus. Uh, what? No, uh, that, that's our, that, if you believe in uh, theistic evolution, that is our very remote ancestors. Us, Homo sapiens. Us, not Australopithecus. How long have, what do you think? The current, all right, if, you, if you've been trained in churches that believe in a young earth, 24-hour, six-day literal creation, you're probably thinking 10,000 years. Uh, if you follow the current scientific view. <laughs> we talked about this last time. 100,000 years approximately. Remember when we were talking last week? And I told you, what we know of human history is what? About 99% not. We only know about 1% of what really happened. So you, I don't know when humans began. But I know it was longer than 10,000 years ago. I know that. So go back 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, whatever. God has been speaking to the human race and showing God's glory before there was writing, before there was a Bible. And the Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, they take this concept and they say that the primary way that God reveals God to the human race is through beauty, through glory, through the wondrousness of God's creation. Does that make sense to you? It's a pre-verbal revelation. And so because it's pre-verbal, because it, you can try to describe it with words, but if you've ever gone somewhere and seen the night sky just ablaze, or some of the photographs that we now see from the Hubble telescope, uh, the cosmos as it really is, it's mind-staggering. Uh, you can put words to it, but you know, really what it's supposed to do is put you into a state of awe. Uh, and this is where, uh, this is a very important thing for us to understand, pre-verbal manifestation of God's glory. So in the 1% of the human race that we now have historical documents that describe how God worked with the human race, I want us to start here uh, in Exodus 33. And if you could turn there with me, please. Um, verse 18 through 21. And I need somebody to read that for us today. As soon as somebody raises their hand, you go flying to their table. Exodus 33, 18 to 21, please, somebody read. 
if you can find it. Second book of the Bible. There's that. <laughs> Just kidding. Right? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, well, Pam, we'll get you next time. Um, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, which one of you literary scholars can look at this text and find the three ways, or the, th the synonyms, there's two besides glory. Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, no, you can't see my glory, but then he uses two synonyms to associate with that concept of glory. Uh, well, that's another uh, attribute of God. Good. Ah! Face. It's real simple. Let's keep looking at the text. You cannot see me. If you look, if you study the text, you'll see glory, face, and me are all used as synonyms. And what I wanted to do is try to get a start here with what glory is. So what is God as glory? What is God's glory? Uh, yeah, it's goodness is an extension of God's glory. Himself. It's just God. It's who God is. It is the essence of God. You probably know the scriptures well enough to know that a face is always uh, used in the Bible as, uh, an, as a symbol for what? For the essence of the person. And... Some of you are probably bummed out about that, right? <laughs> but uh, your face. We recognize faces. I mean, if all of our faces melted away and we were just sitting here blank with bodies, would you know the person that you were sitting with? Probably not. Maybe if you're married to the person, but. But the face is what represents the person, the essence of the person. So God does this. Glory. What is glory? It is the essence of the radiant nature of God. It's a shining, supernatural manifestation of God's essence. The essence of God. The core attribute of God. And, um, and God says to Moses what? When Moses says, I want to see your glory, God says, that cannot happen. Why not? You, you can't see me in, you cannot see me, my naked essence and still live. Why not? It would be so overwhelming, it would melt the circuits of our brains. It, it would literally just blow us away. We wouldn't be able to handle it. 
I'm trying to think of a good analogy to express this, but uh, the best one I can think of is, uh, remember that great si scene from the Raiders of the Lost Ark when that evil Nazi cracks open the uh, Ark of the Covenant? What happens to his face? <laughs> yeah, it just, it just blows him away. And of course, the Ark of the Covenant was always like a symbolic representation of God's glory. So, one thing that we got to get straight here is <clears throat> God's naked essence cannot be experienced by us now. Although in the scripture as it develops, God promises us that someday we will be constitutionally prepared to be able to enter into that experience. But one of the things that you need to get to, to before you can go into that experience, does anyone know what it is? You, you need to well, you have to be fully sanctified. In other words, you have to be perfected by God. But you need something. Something that all of us are going to get after you die. A new body. A new body. Yes, you're going to get a body like Jesus had. And, so, and you're going to be perfected. And God's going to reconstitute us in such a way so that we'll be able to, like, as it were, step up into the evolutionary experience of actually having concourse with God as God really is. Now, if God really showed us as what God is right now, if God came down into this room and showed us exactly what God is like, we would all die. So what does God have to do with us little Muppets? Yeah, transform or, as it were, knock it down a little bit. Mediate. Find some sort of medium by which God can reveal to us what God is like. So the first way that God chose to do it was how? Through creation, yes. So when you stare at the stars, when you go to the Grand Canyon, when you look at the mountains, when you look at the wonders of nature, nature when you study the stars through the Hubble telescope, you're supposed to have a sense of awe, but it's, you're supposed to realize uh, that's just a mediation it's just a medium by which God is communicating to us. Now, the second big stage of God's manifestation of glory is when Moses has this experience on the mountaintop receiving the Torah, the law, from God. And that's on that occasion is when uh, Moses said, will you please show me your glory? So God says, no, you can't. But does anyone know how the rest of the story works out? Moses does not get to see the unmitigated, naked glory of God. But what happens to him when he's on that mountain? He gets transformed. Yes, he, he gets transformed. Down. Because the Bible says he was speaking to God face to face. face to face. Now, again, this is an anthropomorphism, and we know that's true because why? It's a putting God in human terms. We know that's true because why? God is spirit. Therefore, God doesn't have a face. If you want to think about God's face, then you've got to think about unmitigated glory. We can't handle that. So when Moses is chatting with God, what the, what the Bible means is, is not that he's talking to a person with a face. He means he's in God's presence, and God is in some way protecting Moses so he doesn't completely blow him away. And he says, I, I can't really show you how, who I really am. I'm going to give you a little peek. But as they're sitting there talking with one another, communicating, I prefer to look at it as self to self. 
self-to-self communication, something happens to Moses. He begins to uh, get transformed so that when he comes down off of the mountain and starts talking to people, what happens? He's glowing. He's radiating with the glory of God. So this is a cool paradox. You and I cannot see the unmitigated naked glory of God, but humans can do something. What can they do? They can reflect God's glory. And by the way, now we've just hit the gold mine of what, what are we supposed to be? What originally, our original purpose as human beings was we were made how? Yes, we're, you're in a Presbyterian church here. What's the Westminster Catechism say? The chief purpose of man, that's oh, a sexist line, the chief purpose of humans to glorify God and enjoy God forever. And if you take it in the fleshly way, that means, oh, I got to do all this stuff to make God great. We've just dismissed that. The chief purpose of humans is to glorify God. That means the chief purpose of humans is to enter into God's glory and then reflect God's glory. Because humans are made how? The Bible tells us. In the image of God. So we're the visible uh, carbon-based life forms that God has made that in some way are supposed to show something of what God is, but not God's unmitigated glory. In fact, this experience was so wild that what was the response of the Jewish people when they saw Moses' face shining like a stadium lamp? I was like, do you have a little hanky or... Humans don't carry hanky. Give me that napkin for a second. No one carries hankies anymore. Well, it's been used, but that's... <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> he had to put a veil over his face to knock the glory down. And every time he would go in and speak with God self to self, he'd take the veil off. Every time he came back and spoke to the people, he'd put the veil on. And this went on for a pretty long time. So this is the first huge manifestation uh, that God gives to them. Now, soon after that, within one year, God instructs Moses to build what? A tabernacle, a tent. A sacred tent to symbolize the nature of God. Do you recall how many divisions are in this tent? How's it divided? Three outer court, holy place, and in the center, in a little box that was about uh, 10 by 10, not very big at all. It's called what? A holy of holies, the kadosh kadoshim, the sacred place in which God's essence dwelled. And, it's a, and God does all this symbolically so that we can kind of get this. Can anybody just trot in there and say, hey, God, once a year, a, a highly trained person can go in there who's ready for this experience. And I'm sure you've heard that the Jews used to tie a rope onto the person's ankle in case they went in there and had a heart attack because they're the only ones that could go in there I mean, just think about it. If, if you actually knew in that little cabinet 
that God was in a, in a special way. God's here. But if you knew in that little room back there that God was there in some special way, it would give you pause, don't you think? I mean, God. So, this whole symbolic thing was designed to teach that, wow, God is so holy that you just can't trot into the presence of God. You, you have to be trained, and also you have to bring a sacrifice to take care of all of our sins so that we can do it. Now, <clears throat> I want you to find out what happened by looking at Exodus chapter 40. What immediately happened after they built that temple? And it would be Exodus 40, 34 through 35, and Pam's going to read this time. The woman with the sparkly black stuff. Okay. Exodus 40 what? 40, uh, 34 through 35. Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the t tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, and in sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. So what happened when they finished the tabernacle? Yes, they moved, but before they moved, what happened? The glory of God, which we've now defined as what? God's essence. And in a special, supernatural, shiny manifestation, God's essence now was here. Now, no one could see it, but everyone believed that God was there in a special way. And so when the tent moved with them, they were to believe what? God's with us. Advent season. What do we call Jesus? What's his other name? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God is with us. So, this is a symbol of God. Now, see, the glory moves from Moses into a building, into a tent. Okay, now this goes, this happened in 1444 BCE. Now, let's go forward in history to about 960 so how many years is that? About 500. The next thing they build is what? Not a tent. Solomon builds a temple, a permanent structure. And I want you to find the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And here you will see what happened when they finished this one. 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 2. Need a reader? Go find one of those young people and make them read. 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 2. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Now on this occasion, something special happens. We have a repeat. God's glory fills. But when the priests decide to go in, what happens? Burns up. The, well, the sacrifice get burn, gets burned up. 
But when they go into that temple, the priests, the trained people, the ones who are theologically literate, they understand all this stuff, the text says what? They couldn't go in. Why not? Glory filled the temple. But yeah, but wouldn't that be cool? You walk right into the presence of God. They, they weren't ready. They couldn't handle it. It was so supernatural. It was so strong, the glory of God, that they just couldn't go in there. That's amazing to me. Now, we're, we're starting to get the, uh, the feeling, I think, of why C.S. Lewis said about the character in the Chronicles of Narnia that he wrote about, the lion. Does anyone remember the lion's name? Aslan. He always says about Aslan, he's good, but he's not. Does anyone remember? He's good. Tame. Yes! What a scholar you are. He's not, what does that mean? He's good, but he's not tame. He's wild. It was C.S. Lewis's way of trying to get us to understand, look, God's not like a little puppet that you can manipulate. Or, I mean, we're talking about God here. And we're these little, we're the little Muppets. And to go into the presence of God as God really is is just a mind-blowing experience. So here we have a wonderful story. Too strong for the priest to go in. So eventually God had to sort of what? knock it down a little bit so that the priest could go in there and function. So again, another experience of mediated glory. Now this, this goes on. The temple is divided the same way. Three divisions. Once a year the priest goes into the holy place. This goes on over and over and over again, year after year after year until about 600 when an amazing thing happens. Who knows the name Ichabod? Ichabod Crane. There's a, there's, they've re, uh, resurrected the um, Headless Horseman thing on TV right now, right? What's the name of the program? Sleepy Hollow. Ichabod. What does Ichabod mean? Anyone know? Ichabod. It means the glory has departed. That's a good name for a dude that's headless. Ichabod, well, because kavad, actually, the V in Hebrew, kavad, that's the word that the Hebrews use for glory. So Ichabod is no glory. Glory's gone. Now find uh, Ezekiel, chapter 10, verse 18. And Ezekiel describes an event that took place around 600 B.C., now look at the dates, 960, so we're going about 360 years, longer than the full length of the American experience, with glory being in a temple. And we get to Ezekiel, who's reading? Uh, chapter 10, verse 18. Go get one of those old people over there. Ezekiel 10, 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stopped above the cherubim. Okay, and I'm just giving you the essence of it. The cherub, cherubim 
were the angels' wings that met above the Ark of the Covenant, sort of like a symbolic covering. And it, that was right over the box in the Holy of Holies. This text tells us what, and Ezekiel goes on to describe, you can read the whole chapter, what happens to God's glory. It's supposed to be here. What happens to it? It departs. God's glory leaves the temple. Why would God do that? Why would God leave? Uh, yes, you, you are an advanced person. You, you, you're already going. God's trying to teach them that. And eventually, in the New, Newer Testament, we get to that concept. That's one of the reasons. To start the process of helping them understand, look, I, I really don't live in a little box in a, in a building. That's just a construct. It's a symbol. But there's another reason God does this. Yes. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, judgment. judgment. Uh, look, glory is the essence of God. These people at this point in time were saying repeatedly and systematically and over and over again, no, no, no to what God wants. And in fact, look at the date. Ezekiel has this prophecy about 600. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in and they do what? Absolutely destroy the temple. And God let that happen. So that, again, they would realize, okay, look, I don't really live in a box. And you, you have, I gave this to you as a symbolic construct to help you, but you turned it into uh, a concrete uh, realism that was never intended. And because you keep saying no, 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 no to me, Ezekiel is given this vision that God says, okay, I'm leaving the box. And then, just a few years later, he lets the Babylonians come in and completely destroy the place. Wow. So, you know, eventually they rebuild it. Same thing happens, by the way. They rebuild the temple, and the glory of the Lord fills it again. That shows God's grace. But this was a traumatic event in Israel's history. Now, let's go forward a little bit. I want you to go to Luke chapter 9. Actually, quite a bit. 28 through 31. And here we will learn something amazing. Uh, go way, way in the back there. Uh, Luke chapter 9. 28 through 31. Luke chapter 9, 28 through 31. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his countenance was altered and his raiment became dazzling white. And behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. All right, who's the he in this passage? This is Jesus. This is, what's the big fancy theological word that describes this? The transfiguration, to transfigure 
means to transform something. So Jesus is standing with them on this mountaintop. Hey, why did Jesus do it on a mountain? Old covenant, new covenant. So Jesus specifically and deliberately went to a mountain so that they could have this experience. By the way, who happens to show up on this mountain on this day? Moses, the giver of the law, and who else? Elijah, the head of the prophets. And the master, that's why the master always said that the law and the prophets speak and point to me. So they show up on this mountain to encourage Jesus because they speak to Jesus. They actually have a conversation about what? What's the topic? About his death, about his soon-to-be departure. Now, I know we all are so infatuated, me too. Jesus is God, Jesus is God. But Jesus was also what? Human. Now, if you knew, if God kept telling you over and over and over again, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to get stapled up onto a tree, and I want you to die for the sins of the world, and you're human, and you're, God's telling you over and over and over again, I want you to do this and die, or maybe God would send one of you on a mission somewhere, and by the way, God says to you, you realize you're going to die on this mission. And you keep saying to God, What? No, I'm supposed to go to Africa, have a great time, and then come home. Right? Terry, you travel all the time. What if God <laughs> yeah, said... Yeah, I have a goal, when, and I'm, you will all like to know I'm right tracking on this goal, and that is to have the same number of landings as takeoffs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now just think about it, though, as a human being. If God kept telling you over and over and over again, yes, I want you to go and do this mission... But I'm also telling you, get ready, because on this mission, you're going to die. You're going to give your life. And this is, what's, this is what Jesus is facing as a human being. So on this occasion, God gives Jesus some help, some grace, some assistance. He allows Moses and Elijah to show up, and they have a chat now, that would be encouraging, right? If, if an angel showed up in your plane right. and said, you're not landing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but. <laughs> but be encouraged. Yeah. But, but, you know. You, no, fear not. <laughs> yeah, fear not, right. Okay. Now, now that we've settled that, why Jesus had those two compatriots there, what happens? What does Jesus exhibit? Light. The glory, now the glory of God has moved from a building into a person. Now, here's the thing that really helps me and should help us all. The, when Peter sees this, Peter, James, and John are with them, and they see that, and Peter sees that, what's the first thing Peter says we ought to do? Let's build a little tabernacle up here. Because Peter's a Jew, and he's thinking, "What? oh, yeah, I read about this. I heard about this in the Bible before. When they built the temples, and then when they built the tent, what happened? God's glory would fill. So now that it's happening again, my plan is let's get some lumber and build a little 
box up here, and then what? Jesus can stay, stay up here on this mountaintop, radiate, <laughs> and then what? Everybody will just come up there and see the radiant Jesus, and that's the way the mission will get accomplished. That seems pretty logical to you, don't you? Don't you think? The master says what? No, that's, that's not the plan. That was the way, the old way was. I'm moving you along. Now, actually, what I'm going to do is go down and die in Jerusalem. And that's when the whole conversation starts. You can't do that. That's crazy. And the master says, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to rise again. So, we've moved from a building to a person. Now, we get to the end of Jesus' life. John 17, 22. The last teaching he gave to them. The last seminar. The last Jesus seminar. Passover dinner. The vast majority of what they learned that night, they couldn't even understand. They kept asking him questions. What are you talking about? We don't get this. Afterwards, he goes out and prays for them because they're just not ready to fully grasp this. And who's reading for us? John 17, 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then will the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now we got to take some time with this text. Because this is, this is the whole thesis of the New Testament. Right here. The master's praying to God. What's the first thing he says? The glory you gave to me. I'm giving now. This is the body of Christ. I'm giving to them. I'm giving, I'm giving to them the essence of you that you gave to me. Does he tell us why God, Jesus is giving the essence of God, the glory of God, to us? So that we become one. So forget that. What he really means is unity. Because you're not going to lose your personality and Dr. Smith is always going to be Dr. Smith. And Judge Milligan's always going to be Judge Milligan with all of their personality. But the thing that's going to unite them is what? God as glory. So the point is Jesus gives the glory that he has from God to the body of Christ so that the unity oneness that we experience is no longer rooted in what? I like you because you like the Buckeyes. That's a slam on my Michigan friends. I like you because... Why do you like people? Like your friends? They have personalities and what else? They love you. What's one of the... Usually because they also have things in 
Yes, and yes, yes, we all have these things in common. Like, what are some of the things you, you and your friends have in common? What do you do? Like, play. you play. Yeah. Did you know adults play too? <laughs> like, men, they go out and hit a little ball with a stick. <laughs> and we consider that to be bonding. <laughs> but that's all human oneness. That's all human unity. God wants to take us into this supernatural realm to have unity, not because we like each other as humans, as carbon-based creatures, because we like to play games together, because we have similar personalities. No. I mean, that's all cool. That's fine. It's part of being human. But the true unity is going to come because we're all sharing in this glory. Now keep reading, because that's not the end of it. Once you can get a group of people who say, right, we're now going to experience God's essence, and that's going to become the basis of our unity, something else can happen. What's the next step? The world will know. Yes, that the world will know. So th this thing of God as glory, was intended by Jesus to tie together this entire thing back to the beginning of human history. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's not a book. It's an experience. Now, how is the world going to see the glory of God? Through people. Through goofballs like you and me. And the one thing that we have going for us is not we're smart or better than worldlings or whatever. The thing that God has given to us is what? The essence of God. So you and I are now supposed to walk around in this world and to a certain extent replicate. Not that we can do it. We can't do it. But we're supposed to be replicas of this experience that Jesus had when he was on the mountain, when you could actually see the glory of God. Or like when Moses had the radiance of God's essence flowing out of him. God wants to now do this in the world today. Yes, sir? Well, no, God is not more, more real there. God is everywhere present, omnipresent. But what's not there out in nature is all of the stuff that humans do to clutter up and even knock down God's glory even further. So when you're there out in nature, devoid from all of the man-made stuff, the experience, you, you start having a rising experience of what God has infused within nature. It's a witness. Now, let me ask you, now here's the thing I really want you to see. This is an experience. How does Jesus say humans are going to know? Because 
you bring them to a lecture like this and some teacher like me goes through the whole thing and lays it all out real sweet. And No, how does, how does Jesus say that the average person in the world is going to know? Just by the fact that you have God in you, that God's glory is in you. That is how humans will come to know. That's what Jesus said. He's counting on that. Not that we're going to have, and I don't put any of these things down, but it's not like you got to have to have a little track in your back pocket as soon as you have a human encounter and give it to somebody, and here it is. No, the tract is what? Your love. You. Okay, now what's an icon? We don't have one in this building. There's some out there in the hallway. There is, isn't there? I'd probably get in trouble if I went out and got one, but would I get in trouble? Go get one. <laughs> get one Get one that shows the glow. <clears throat> what is an icon? An image. It's an image. It's a representation. Now, in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and I go through this in chapter 2 of my book, Jesus is called the icon of God. So when you see Jesus, you're seeing, yes. Oh, this is brilliant. <laughs> Look, what are those little circles that the artist has? We call them halos. The artist, they're actually called in technical language, the nimbus. The, uh, I'm sorry? The cloud? Yes, there is a nimbus cloud. Yes. A nimbus is a, um, an effulgence. A glow. Why did, the, uh, why did the ancient Christian artist always paint? And, you know, when I was a kid, I thought, well, how come all these people have dinner plates attached to the back of their heads? <laughs> Why did they do that? Why do they always put the nimbus around these people? <laughs> yeah, it is beautiful. They look like helmets or dinner plates or but they're actually supposed to be the glory. The glory of God. They're they're supposed they're radiating the glory of God. So, now I'd like you to find, we just have one minute left, two minutes left. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is, this is God's whole strategy. This is God's whole strategy. 3.18. Uh, I'll read this one while somebody else gets ready to read 2 Corinthians 4.6. Somebody else volunteer to read 4.6, 2 Corinthians 4.6. I'll read 3.18. Y'all with me? All of us with open face, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one stage of glory into another stage of glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. So he's talking to believers. So the glory that the Lord Jesus gave to us as a gift, the essence of God that God put inside of us, 
as we contemplate that, as we experience that, as we enter into it, what does Paul say will happen to us? We will be become like that. We will be transformed. Now, notice what he says. It's very careful because you're not going to start glowing like a stadium lamp overnight. We all, with unveiled face, that's the key part. That means that you've got to take off your mask, take off all of our masks, take off everything, and just ponder Christ. As you do that, for real, you get transformed how? One stage, ever increasingly growing. Now, what do you think the end point is? You might, this might sound weird to some of you, but what do you think God wants to do ultimately? What would be the, if somebody would do this on a regular basis? Yes, you would be actually a physical replica or an icon. I mean, that would be kind of weird if you actually walked out into the church and saw a person like this, right? I mean, that would get your attention. How come it doesn't happen more often? Too much of us, not enough of Christ. So with the artist, the Christian artist, remember this is pre-literacy, pre-books. They used pictures to, to teach theological truths just like God does. God uses nature. The Christian artist said, you know, what, what's the essence of this whole thing? We're supposed to be transformed into Jesus, and they put those nimbuses around people's heads. I don't know, my Latin is failing me today. Was it nimbi? <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> what's the plural of nimbus? Whatever. Um, you're supposed to, I'm supposed to see creatures like this walking around, and when you do, it, what is it supposed to do? Uh, uh, arrest attention. What is going on here? What is the source of this radiance? Notice, it's not verbal. This is very important. Because what age do we live in? If you remember from the first week. We live in a postmodern age that says what about words? Whatever. But I'll tell you what, somebody sees the glory of Jesus radiating from somebody's face. Postmodern, premodern, modern, whatever, <laughs> there's going to be some impact. And in point of fact, that's how I became a Christian. I actually saw this over and over again in Christians. God let me see the glory of God. And that's what got my attention, and that's what caused me to listen. Yes? I can always, I can, all, I can connect it very easily if you take one more minute and look at Galatians 4.19, please. By the way, Natalie was here. You turned her upside down. Yes, I did. <laughs> Galatians 4.19. Now, Dr. Smith, listen to this. It's very, very important. Find this passage. What does it say? My little children... I am 
bearing the pains of childbirth along with you until Christ is formed, he means fully formed within you. Do you realize what Paul is doing here? He's likening every Christian to a woman. He's likening every Christian to, I'll use the universal symbol for Christ here, the Cairo. He's, using, he's likening every Christian to a pregnant woman who has what inside of them? Christ. And what we're supposed to do, Dr. Smith, is allow Jesus to grow inside of us to such an extent that we show. And not only do we show, we're supposed to glow. glow. Oh, wow. Show and glow. Okay, have a wonderful week. God bless you. I will see you next time.